This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology helping to reduce the need for business travel. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Colbert Report, NPR, Counterspin, Citizen Radio, The Progressive, The Bugle, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. The biggest problem, the biggest difference by far in for everyone in this neighborhood would be the services. And if you look here, this is typical now. Wires everywhere. Baghdad in a neighborhood like this had 24-hour power before the invasion. 24 hours Not a day. everywhere in the country, but the places that Saddam wanted there to be power, you can get 24 hours of The power. capital, strategic place for Saddam where he lived and all of his buddies lived. Yeah. And is, you know, it's the capital after So all. like Tikrit was gold. No problem. Yeah. Uh, south, less so. But, well, even in the south under Saddam, they had more power than they do here now. I mean, What the American it, officials say, though, is that overall there's actually more, gener- there's more power being generated in Iraq right now. It's just about the demand. I, I would invite them to live in an Iraqi's house for 24 hours. Yeah. And just, it's hot. Just just do that. Just stay in an Iraqi's house for uh, for two days yeah. and see if you still say the same thing. Yeah. Oh, yes, the power situation is better now than before. Yeah. That is ludicrous and wrong. Yeah. Maybe the total wattage is up. Quality of life and quality of, in terms of power and services are abysmal right now. When it comes, by the way, it blows out all of your appliances. Right, because, so, you, haven't had- because you haven't had it for a while. It's, I mean, you just think about that. This is the country with the second largest oil reserves in the world that does not have enough energy to have power even for an hour at a time all over the country, even including in the capital city. And, and on top of that, America is in year nine of a full-scale, massive occupation and war here. And we're leaving with that being the circumstance. Uh, that's, that's the, especially since it's hot, since it's Ramadan, people are fasting. That's yeah. the taste that people have in their mouth right now. NBC's chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel and I talking about the primacy of the issue of electricity for Iraqis, an issue that Vice President Biden told me will get solved in Iraq before Americans leave there. All U.S. troops are due to be gone from Iraq by the end of next year. There are 50,000 American troops there now on an ostensibly non-combat mission. The vice president saying the non-combat designation may be a misnomer, which seems fair. Two U.S. soldiers have been killed in Iraq, nine wounded since Operation Iraqi Freedom, technically a combat operation, became Operation New Dawn, which is technically not a combat operation. Joining us now is Iraq war veteran Paul Rykoff, the founder and executive director of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of america paul thanks for being here my pleasure rachel good to see you um vice president says it can't be called a combat mission anymore because essentially u.s troops don't serve foreign commanders and if iraqis are leading in the fighting then we have to say we're just there as support so we can't call it a combat mission is that a a dissatisfying explanation to you yes it's absolutely political spin Combat operations are not over in Iraq. The president needs to stop saying it. The vice president needs to stop saying it. We've got almost 50,000 troops on the ground there right now who are getting combat pay, who are getting shot at, who are getting mortared. Combat operations are not over. And the military community is upset about this. They need to stop saying it. It does a disservice to the military. It does a disservice to the, to the American people. It does a disservice to the Iraqi people. And try telling the families of Sergeant Philip Jenkins and Private First Class James McClamrock, who died last week, 
the combat operations are over. It's garbage. So even if it has to technically, legally be considered not a combat mission, we shouldn't be using that term colloquially at all? I don't think so. No, there, there, there's probably a high percentage of American people who think there are zero troops in Iraq right now. Yeah. And that's because the White House is pushing this message. It, it's just flat out wrong. They're trying to keep a campaign promise. And, and I honestly think that's what a lot of this is about. And, and I've spoken to people on the ground in Iraq who said to me, if combat operations are over, why did I just get shot at? If combat operations are over, why did my son just get deployed over there yesterday? It, it's untrue. I I think, though, that a lot of people in America probably think that there hasn't been a war in Iraq for a long time since it left the news, since people started stopped talking about it. Right. And the question that we have, our moral responsibility, is what's the right way, best way, and maximalist way to support the troops that are still there in danger? That's what we still have to deal with at home. Yeah, and, and part of it is recognizing that they're there. Yeah. And when you say that combat is over, people think there's no one there. Most people don't know how many troops are in Afghanistan. Most people don't know that 2.2 million people have been through Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11. We've got this massive disconnect between between the military and, and the American people. And, and messaging like this only perpetuates that and makes it worse. Paul, I know right now you're working on a GI Bill, essentially GI Bill 2.0, trying to yeah. update the GI Bill, the historic GI Bill that was passed within the last few years. What's the update? Right now, the GI Bill does not cover vocational schools, amazingly. It doesn't cover distance learning. Uh, Congress hasn't really gotten a lot done for veterans this year. They haven't gotten jobs progress done. They haven't really dented the disability uh, reform that was necessary. The claims backlog keeps going up. We can get GI Bill progress done in the next nine days if everybody focuses on it. We need these upgrades. We need Senator Reid to get it to the floor immediately, and we need the American people to tell them that. In the next couple days, call Congress, tell them to send the new GI Bill to the floor and vote on it. That's what we need. When you and I last talked, you were expressing frustration about access to the administration, uh, specifically access and who to call and whether you get your names called, your phone calls back, uh, your, your phone calls returned. Is, are, is there imp improvement on that? Do you feel like there's, they're listening to you now? We, we had a good meeting with the White House this week, and, and I think that's progress, but we need points on the board. The, the suicide rates continue to skyrocket. The unemployment rate continues to go up. The backlog is still about a million claims at the VA. So they can't keep talking about stuff they did a year and a half ago. People are fighting and dying now and coming home in record numbers, and we need points on the board. Paul said to Pete, you gotta push yourself a little harder Pretend the death from above is a dragon and your feet are on fire But I got a girl in the war, Paul, the only thing I know to do Yarns of true danger. Jimmy, release the Krakar! Hey, Mr. Krakar, good to see you. Nice to meet you. Pleasure is mine. Now, uh, I'm a big fan. I read a bunch of your stuff. When I haven't read this one yet, when I saw the title here, Where Men Win Glory, I naturally thought it was about NASCAR. <laughs> that's where they do it. <laughs> this book is actually about Pat 
Tillman. What happened to him in the war and what happened after he died? Now, I remember a little bit about Pat. Um, uh, he went to Afghanistan. He was a football player, gave it up, went to Afghanistan and won a Silver Star for charging into enemy fire and, and saving his whole troop. Yelling, I think, a re-elect George Bush. <laughs> a little, slightly different than that. What did I get wrong? He uh, wasn't charging a hill. He actually did perhaps save the life of a comrade, but it was because his own platoon mates, American soldiers, were spraying hundreds of rounds of machine gun fire all around him. So he stood up to wave, and he was shot by his own team, his own platoon mates, by Americans. Friendly fire. Friendly fire. And the Silver Star was presented, this whole story about the Taliban charging the hill was concocted to, uh, to avoid revealing to the American people that this was friendly fire. What, what, now, what year are we talking here? This is April 2004. Things were really looking bad for the Bush administration. Bush was up for re-election in six months. His poll numbers were going down. Support for the war was going down. The last thing they wanted was to announce they shot their poster boy. There's letters, there's emails from Rumsfeld saying, we've got to keep an eye on this guy. He, you know, we want to make the most of this. And you know, they used him shamelessly. Now, Tillman, when he decided to enlist, he, he stopped talking to the media. He didn't want this to be misunderstood. He said his actions spoke for themselves. So the Bush administration was twisting his arm constantly to support the war, and he was just... He was an exemplary well, that, soldier. I mean, you can understand, I'm sure, why the Bush administration would do it, because you can't win a war without support for the war. We learned that in Vietnam, correct? That's, that's right. And Pat Tillman was a, a, an advertisement in the hands of the leaders of this war, or rather the men who ordered the war, uh, uh, proving to the young people out there that sweetness and honor it is to die for one's country. You know, dolce et decorum est pro patria mori. It didn't quite work. It, it worked for a while. It worked for a little while. How did, how did it stop working? Uh, what happened was, uh, the, the, this whole cover-up was engineered by General McChrystal. He was the guy... The guy who just got kicked out of Afghanistan? That's right, right. And it wasn't just, let's keep our mouths shut, it was a very aggressive conspiracy. McChrystal dispatched uh, army lawyers to obstruct a, an army CID investigation, an investigation by the law enforcement agency of the army. He submitted this fraudulent Silver Star recommendation that made no mention of friendly fire. The so, army but didn't how did this come out, I guess, is what well, I'm because asking. Did the after, guys talk? Did the uh, reporters investigate? It, 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 they weren't thinking ahead. They did all this elaborate stuff to cover this up, but there was 200 guys in Tillman's battalion, and after about five weeks, they came home from Afghanistan, and his commanders went, huh, these guys are going to be talking to each other. They're going to get drunk and be pissed off, and they're going to spill the beans, so we better preempt this. So they waited to Memorial Day weekend when no one is watching TV, and they held a press conference at 9 in the morning that no one saw, and it's the only, and they said he might have been killed by friendly fire. It's the only single time before or since that the Bush administration made any acknowledgement that he was killed by friendly fire. Why talk about this? Because, because if six the, minutes ago, I thought Pat Tillman was an example of a good reason to go be a, a warrior. He, and he, now he is? Yeah. He, he, but, but now you make me feel like if I go to war, I might get killed for the wrong, <laughs> for the wrong, for the wrong reasons and by the wrong people. That's a distinct possibility. And you've in every just war. taken the shine off of combat for me. Sometimes I believe. And just, I don't know. A second ago, I was super excited about the Iraq yeah. War. I, I'm a, I believe in a strong military. I was embedded for five months in Afghanistan, and I was blown away. I, I came away with such admiration for the one percent of this country that, that has served in these wars. The rest of us go about our business, don't even think about it. These guys, it, it is such a hard job. I'm not even talking about the danger. And 
how do we repay them? How do you repay someone like Tillman, who, out of duty, a sense of duty and patriotism, he joined the army, and the guys in the army, the army itself, you know, hijacked his honor. I mean, how, how do you reconcile that? It's, it's like if you criticize that, you're, you're not a patriot, all, all this stuff that that's, drives me crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's patriotic. Is there any, is there, do, would you accept at all that those guys uh, were actually trying to honor him? No. By, why? Well, they, they made his death more meaningful. Tillman was all about honesty. He was a guy who could not tell a lie. He believed that he kept his promise. He had a chance to get out of the army. He served in Iraq, a war he, he quote unquote said was illegal as hell. He didn't, when he joined the army, he didn't know Bush was going to invade Iraq. He served, he did his duty, he came back. His sports agent called him up and said, Patty, I can, the Seattle Seahawks want to hire you for next season. Back in the NFL, I can get you out. You've done a tour. The NFL and the Defense Department are in bed together. It's a done deal. And you, he, the, the, the NFL and the Defense Department? <laughs> That's right. We're playing footsie with each other? That's right. They, 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 and NFL gets first round draft pick? <laughs> That's right. That's how it all came about. So Tillman, he wouldn't even consider it. He said, no, I signed up for three years. I'm going to serve my three years. Four months later, he was in Afghanistan. And he was shot by his own guys. So this is a, the most honorable, patriotic guy you can think of. And, how, and this is how he's repaid. By, he became a propaganda tool. How do you think that we as a nation should repay the men and women who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan for the past seven years? Or nine years for Afghanistan? We should all, we owe them a huge debt. It's impossible to, to thank them enough. Um, we should support veterans' benefits. There's a, something called the Pat Tillman Foundation, pattillman.org, that his wife, his widow, started. If you want to support our troops, that's a great place to start. I mean, the guys are coming back. A lot of them are all f***ed up from IEDs. They've got traumatic brain injury. They've got PTSD. And, and we don't even, you know, they come back and they're trying to fit in. You, gotta, you just got to think about it. This isn't, you know... I'll, the, tell you, I'll tell you what they don't need is the salty talk. I know, be, they'd be shocked. I know, they, they'd, but be, they'd shocked. be shocked if they'd they be, hear you drop they, the F-bomb. They'd be shocked. <laughs> They've been at war, not in a saloon, sir. <laughs> Mr. Krakauer, thank you so much for coming on. There's a monster If you're like most Americans, then the politics of the last 30 years has driven you to the point where you're totally ready to pack up and move to Canada. Or maybe New Zealand, because it looked beautiful in Lord of the Rings. In any case, you're totally serious about it this time, and you're going. Well, you're in luck, because with GoToMeeting, you can work from anywhere and still meet with clients and coworkers online while sharing your screen with one or many people all at once. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code PODCAST for a 45-day free trial. You could be settled in your new Vancouver home and join socialized medicine before you had to pay a dime. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code PODCAST for this special 45-day free trial. Army Specialist Adam Winfield served in Kandahar province this year, and he sent up a cry for help in Facebook messages to his father. He said his fellow soldiers were committing murder. Here's NPR's Tom Bowman. Specialist Winfield complained in those messages home that he was being hounded by his platoon leader, Staff Sergeant Calvin Gibbs. Sergeant Gibbs was angry when Winfield failed to lock the hatch of his armored vehicle, so the sergeant gave him extra duty. Fed up, Winfield tapped out a message to his father, Chris, on a January day, complaining that his mistakes were minor compared to what Gibbs had done. 
Here's Chris Winfield. He gets in trouble for little things when the golden child of the platoon, and he was speaking about Gibbs, he said the golden child can do no wrong. He can commit murder, and he put it in parentheses, and get away with it, and everybody seems to be fine with it. The Army has now charged Gibbs with three murders. The charging documents allege the first one occurred shortly before Specialist Winfield sent that message to his father. The Army says Gibbs tossed a grenade at an Afghan civilian, then ordered his soldiers to open fire, killing him. Gibbs's lawyer, Philip Stackhouse, says his client did nothing wrong and that all the killings took place during combat and were justified. Chris Winfield didn't hear from his son again for another month, not until February. This time, says the father, his son's messages were more desperate. He was kind of torn, you know, he's like, do I do the right thing? Do I put my life on the line? Do I say something to somebody? What do I do? And, did, you, um, did you tell him to do anything? Well, I, I told him, I said, is there anyone you can go to? And he said, no. He said, Gibbs is watching my every move, and uh, he's already threatened, you know, threatened me that if I say anything, that he's going he's gonna to do something to me. So the father, Chris Winfield, took it upon himself to get someone in the Army to listen. He left messages with an Army hotline, spoke with a sergeant at Fort Lewis, Washington, where his son's unit is based, who referred him to Army investigators. So he called the investigators and left a message. Then he spoke with another sergeant at a command center at Fort Lewis who suggested his son report the incident after he got home. And then he can turn the guy in in safety and not have to worry about any repercussions. And I just was like, you got to be kidding me. Eric Montalvo, Winfield's lawyer and a retired Marine officer, says the system failed. All service members have a basic obligation that if they are in receipt of information that is related to a crime, they're required to do something about that. Army officials say they're looking into why no one followed up on Chris Winfield's calls. And it was after those calls, according to Army documents, that two more murders of Afghan civilians were committed by Sergeant Gibbs and his soldiers. One in February, another in May. Among those charged in the third alleged murder, Specialist Winfield the same soldier who wrote his dad and alerted him to what was going on. The Army says Winfield shot at an unarmed Afghan man after Gibbs tossed a grenade. Winfield's lawyer says his client was ordered to shoot by Sergeant Gibbs, but aimed high. We were floored. I, w I was shocked. Again, Chris Winfield. If they would have listened to me, for one thing, my son would have never been arrested. And two, there would be two more Afghans still alive. The Army finally did listen to Winfield after his son was charged. Army investigators went to his home to get a statement, the Facebook messages from his son, and his phone log of calls to the Army. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Washington. Some headlines really make you wonder. The New York Times ran a story on September 28th about a military court that's investigating claims that members of a U.S. Army unit randomly killed Afghan civilians. Some of the soldiers say they were pressured to do so by a commanding officer. There are also reports that soldiers took pictures of the dead Afghans along with body parts. 
The headline of the New York Times piece in some editions was odd. Drug use cited in unit tied to civilian deaths. That would seem to be a reference to the brief mention near the bottom of the piece from one lawyer who suggested there was widespread drug use in this particular unit. Now, that would hardly seem like the most important revelation in the article. Then again, sometimes an entire news report can seem a bit off. Take the September 27th USA Today report that was headlined, IEDs show troop surge working, U.S. officers say. So the fact that U.S. forces are being attacked more frequently in Afghanistan is a sign that the surge plan is working. The piece is full of quotes from U.S. officials who insist that these attacks are a sign that the Taliban just can't fight a conventional war, or as the piece's subheadline put it, planting mines seen as Taliban's cowardly effort to stave off defeat as forces advance. The article did quote an analyst from the Heritage Foundation who argued that insurgents are trying to erode support for the war here at home. They're after headlines, is the way he put it. Well, USA Today actually makes headlines and the stories that go along with them. And here they went out of their way to portray attacks on U.S. troops as a sign that the war is working. Maybe the Taliban aren't the only ones after headlines. Well, this is a story in The Guardian, that godless British rag. Ugh, you and your fucking facts and pompous accent. I know. So, apparently, allegedly, everybody, allegedly, U.S. soldiers killed Afghan civilians for sport and collected their fingers as trophies. Okay. I have a question. Yes? Didn't the monsters do that in Predator? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Um, here's the... uh, I mean, the story itself is horrible, but here's a really outrageous fact. The only reason they busted these guys for, again, killing civilians at random and collecting their fingers as trophies is because they got busted smoking hashish. Right. And that is the only reason. So the only success, literally the only success that the war on drugs has ever had was they accidentally found five dudes who sport hunt Afghanis. Yes. Exactly. You know how in movies, they were like really bad old 80s like martial art movies or whatever? The villain would, he'd have all of his henchmen and like the new investor. Uh And then they'd be like, we're going hunting. And everyone's like, yeah, hunting. And then they go, what are we hunting? And then he goes, people. And they like give the prisoners, like, two minutes to, like, a two-minute head start, and then they all chase after them in their Jeeps. Right. Uh, We're funding that for real. Yeah, for reals. That's happening for reals in Afghanistan right now. Here's a really confusing part to me. So a while ago, we talked about in this show the girl without a nose on the Time magazine uh, cover who had her nose cut off by the Taliban. And the whole argument behind that was, see, this, this is why we need to be there. 
This is why we need to permanently occupy Afghanistan to stop this from happening. To get this girl's nose back. But here's the thing. We were there when that happened. Just like we're there right now and these civilians are being killed at random by this secret death squad that cuts off their fingers. That's what we're doing there. Right. Um, so I don't really see how we're protecting civilians by permanently occupying them. It just seems like a lot of civilians are dying. Occasionally we'll get a militant or two, but we, you know, we had a bomb a wedding to do that and we killed 70 people who had nothing to do with anything. So it doesn't really seem like in itself a valid reason for staying. Right. Like if we blow up an entire family and the daughter runs out and says you killed my entire family I now have no home and no access to food do we respond with but you have a nose Yay! but here's the thing oh I got your nose and then you don't you actually are holding your thumb in your hand and she's probably terrified yeah. but you're like I have it and then you put it back on and then you remove a nickel from her ear right. which isn't a nickel sorry my point is, we're there right now, and the Taliban cut off that girl's nose. So we're not even successfully protecting the pretend women we've concocted for propaganda purposes, where we're like, oh, we're going to save all these women, it's going to be awesome, we're going to dance under a rainbow holding hands. That's what they say, right? Yes. Um, that's not even happening. So I, I just think it's, it's interesting. I think that the secret death squads is interesting to me. Yeah. Maybe you don't agree. But yeah. I think it's interesting. Yeah, no, I do agree. Sorry, I was trying to see if I had the energy to do a double rainbow joke, but moved into Afghanistan. You, the nice thing about double rainbow is you can just scream double rainbow, and that everybody will get it. But I was going to switch it to Afghanistan. I was going to be like, oh, the charred corpses of people that America's killed. Oh, my God. Uh, see, I wouldn't have understood if that was double rainbow. No. Jamie, what? I have another story. Well, wait, hold on. We're only eight minutes in. You gotta fucking... No, I have a lot of stories, though, I'm telling you. I know, but you gotta stretch I this. have a lot. Yeah, but I have thoughts But then this. we have listener mail, too, that we have to get to. Yeah, well, this show isn't called Allison Kilkenny Read Shit. I have my humorous take. Is it about Double Rainbow? Because I think we already hit that. No, but you don't understand. It's not Double Rainbow. It is the Double Rainbow voice. Uh-huh. With Afghanistan. Yeah. Here's my point. Yeah. Is just to kind of go off what you were talking about. You know, if we keep murdering people in Afghanistan, we are turning moderates into bad guys. And not even bad guys, people who are defending themselves from us killing them. So no matter how much good you say we're doing, even if we are, we do start building schools, even if we do, it doesn't matter because if your home was occupied by people who, I mean, granted, like, we do have to say, like, these guys were, like, rogue dudes. It wasn't state-sanctioned human hunting. But at the same time, what is a war? I mean, a war kind of is state-sanctioned human hunting. Yeah, I always love that when they're like, oh, this is just an exception to the rule. Like, they weren't doing the official civilian killing. They were doing their own rogue civilian killing. It's like, oh, okay. But civilians still died, right? Yes. Right. Okay. So it's fine as long as you don't cut the hands off people. Like, that's so crazy to me, too. It's like, these guys were, you know, especially crazy. But it's like, yeah, like you said, how is that any different? From, you're still murdering people. Yeah, like clearly they had seen uh, Inglorious Bastards. 
But is does it really pale in comparison to, you know, these predator uh, drone attacks? Does it really pale in comparison to right. bombing entire villages? It, it's not like Americans are like, no, when we kill Afghani civilians, we give them a pill uh-huh. and we make sure they fall asleep and we hold their hand and we get their family around and we mm-hmm. tell them a little story and then they drift away like they're going for a long nap. Like we still blow off limbs. Right. A fucking these assholes were just. Their mistake was going a step further, and once they were dead, cutting off little trophies. Yeah, right. which by the way, can we talk about that? That is what war breeds into you. Yeah, like it's not like I mean, there were more than one guy. This isn't like some like rogue serial killer. But when you teach people, you know, this kind of institutionalized killing, and that the enemy is not human, right? This shit's gonna happen. If your enemy is not human, if you're not supposed to think about them as a human, what is the difference between shooting him in the head and shooting him in the head and then cutting his fingers off? There's not. Yeah, there was a movie a while ago, I think called Buffalo Soldiers, that I don't like war films because they tend to glorify the violence, but I like this one because there really wasn't a lot of action. It just showed soldiers doing what they do most of the time, which is sitting around going batshit crazy from boredom and drinking really heavily and using drugs. And yeah, if you combine that with dehumanizing the enemy and then occasionally unleashing them upon the community, what the fuck do you think is going to happen? Especially with no oversight. Oh, no oversight. Okay, the bit's not going to work. It's not going to. Something's happening on the streets. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoyed this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you. Please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. But it's Something's happening. Someone's given a speech. Obama's speech to the UN didn't bowl me over. First, even when he was trying to press for an agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians, he tilted his hand toward Israel. When he itemized some of the problems, he talked in the harshest terms about the violent actions by some Palestinians and the slaughtering of innocent Israelis. Yes, inexcusable. But he didn't mention the violent actions of some Israelis and of the Israeli military and the slaughtering of innocent Palestinians, or in the daily humiliations the occupation inflicts on Palestinians. Once again, a U.S. president made the conflict out between barbarians on one side and almost a benign occupier on the other. The second problem I had with the speech was Obama's belligerence toward Iran. Sounding a bit like his predecessor, Obama said, international law is not an empty promise. And he added, the door remains open to diplomacy should Iran choose to walk through it. Well, by implication, Obama was saying the door remains open to war if Iran doesn't choose to walk through the door marked diplomacy. Now, this may be a subtler saber-rattling than George Bush engaged in, but it's saber-rattling nonetheless. If you close the door 
The night could last forever. Leave the sunshine out and say hello to never. The people are dancing and they're having such fun. I wish it could happen to me. If you close the door, I never have to see the day again. Top story this week. Give me a U. Give me an N. Give me an annual gathering of diplomats and heads of state. What have you got? The UN General Assembly. <laughs> Just yesterday, You've been doing too many stadium gigs, Josh. Just, just yesterday, Andy, UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon launched the 65th UN General Assembly here in New York City. Uh, he was picked to host after the controversial hosting job last year of Billy Crystal, where he did a song-and-dance parody of each member nation in a 13-hour opening monologue that was described as both breathtakingly offensive and mind-blowingly long. Instead... This year, Ban Ki-moon stuck to his more traditional approach, <laughs> running on stage to the sounds of two unlimiteds, you're ready for this, before sliding on his knees and firing t-shirt <laughs> cannons into the electrified crowd. The t-shirts had a variety of slogans on, Andy, such as, Bounds the Man, Unstoppable Moon, with the Un of Unstoppable in the UN font, and finally, This is where the assembly is at, with an arrow pointing toward the groin. <laughs> the... But he's also released his uh, his new album, uh, Blue Moon, which is yep. his more risque stand-up. That's right. That's, uh... That's right. Not for the kiddies. Um, the whole city here, Andy, has been buzzing with anticipation all week, and that's no surprise. It's the most glittering week in global democracy. The paparazzi were out in full force yesterday as the biggest names in politics walked the powder blue carpet. As delegates from all the nations walked past, there was a sea of camera flashes and shouts of, Mr. President! Mr. President, who are you wearing? <laughs> and what are you going to do about your nation's shameful infant mortality rate? Mr. President, big smile over here, please. Big smile. Uh, in his opening address, Ban Ki-moon said the UN provided a moral compass for a world in which social inequalities were growing, with women and children bearing the brunt, which is true, but the UN has had real trouble with its moral compass in the past, Andy. It's been very unreliable. <laughs> like when it inexplicably pointed away from Rwanda. <laughs> Probably just needs shaking up and down a bit or not being stored next to magnets. <laughs> um, after Ban Ki-moon had warmed the audience up, Andy, with a bit of crowd work, just basic stuff like, uh, what's your name? Where'd you come from? Why aren't you doing more to increase literacy in your region? Can I count on your support in reducing carbon by 2025? Is that your tie or did your neck just throw up? That kind of thing. <laughs> he, he, Where's that from? That's he nice. Had, he handed... <laughs> He handed the mic over to President Obama, whose speech focused mainly on the Middle East peace process, including a plea for unity and for all nations to present a united front supporting a peaceful resolution featuring cutaway shots of the Palestinian delegation and then the Israeli delegation's empty chairs because Israel, Andy, did not turn up. Now, you might well ask, how could they not turn up to the most important speech on the future of their region in years? They must have had an excellent excuse. It turns out that they were at home observing the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. And the, the day went... And exactly. The yeah. fact it went quiet rather than... <laughs> oh, yes, of course, down the other end of that microphone. I was just observing it myself. <laughs> F*** you, John. The, it's the day, of course, as we all know, especially you, Andy, when yeah, Jews course, build yeah. makeshift huts called sukkahs from uh, leaves oh, no, and they're twigs. Not, they're not called... They're called Wendy houses. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> from leaves and twigs to commemorate the fragile dwellings they lived in when the ancient Israelites wandered the desert. Which makes perfect sense, Andy. You can now totally understand why they couldn't make the UN General Assembly now. As holidays go, that's a biggie. It's not like Jews have lots of holidays. <laughs> Do you not think that God might have given them a mulligan on this one, Andy? <laughs> Surely he'd let this one slide considering what was on the line. He's not going to be up in heaven saying, congratulations, you've brought peace to a region beset by war. May you live in harmony for... Hold on a second. Where's your grass hut? Oh, I know you didn't just slip, skip a cot. I know you didn't do that. You know what a stickler I am for that holiday of the hut. That's it. Famine and pestilence be upon all of you. Seriously. Famine and pestilence for everyone. I'm so pissed off right now. <laughs> yeah, Obama called for guess what in the Middle East. We'll give you a multiple choice. Was it A, free tricycles for all? B, more food fights, less gunfights? <laughs> C, peace? Or D, more strip clubs? <laughs> Well, it was, of course, C, explicitly, oh. and B, implicitly, <laughs> possibly with A as an incentive, and D as an inevitable upshot of increased westernisation. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> and he also, he's uh, apparently trying the carrot and stick approach with Iran, John. Right. And uh, it's all very well, but... Um, of course, there's a problem with the carrot and stick approach, as, mm -hmm. uh, as we well know, and that is, if you get a big enough carrot, you can actually use it as a stick. Yes. And uh, if you actually get some of those little carrots and coat them in lead, you can sort of use them as uh, little makeshift bullets. So in many ways, the carrot is in fact much more dangerous than the stick. It is true. And there you go. That's a bit of classic <laughs> Zaltzman and Oliver yeah. <laughs> from 2004, I believe. Was two I think it was 04. Could be. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's Oliver 04. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it might... Uh, it might seem strange to have Obama as your opening act for the Assembly, but the truth is, the big speakers are traditionally the whack jobs of the UN. They're the big ticket acts who can forget Chavez claiming that the room still smells of sulphur after the presence of George W. Bush, or Colonel Gaddafi talking for so long last year that he went through two translators. <laughs> All special moments. Someone who's been consistent, though, when it comes to producing the consistent crazy over the years, is Ahmadinejad. And he did not leave his fans disappointed this year by going on a rant about 9-11, saying there was an argument that some segments within the US government orchestrated the attack to reverse the declining American economy and its grip on the Middle East in order to save the Zionist regime. At this point, the American delegation walked out. He then went on, the majority of the American people, as well as most nations and politicians around the world, agree with this view. And at this point, lots of other delegations walked out as well. It was... Problem is, it was like everyone was just going through the motions. They walk out every year. It clearly isn't stopping him. They're handling him all wrong, Andy. The way I see it, they have three key options. Either everyone should walk out, and I mean everyone, including cameramen and translators, leaving him talking awkwardly to a completely empty room, <laughs> or you should stay all the way through it. Don't give him the satisfaction of a dramatic walkout. Instead, they'll read a book while he's sitting there, play a board game with nearby delegates, <laughs> get, get out an inflatable neck pillow and take a nap, <laughs> or better still, order a pizza to the UN chamber and munch on it while he's talking. <laughs> give him the respect he deserves. Or they should just electrify the podium and every time someone says something crazy, a 100-volt jot should be shot through it. <laughs> I think that might gradually teach the extremist leaders of the world to be slightly <laughs> less moronic. But it wasn't just 9-11 conspiracy spewing from Ahmadinejad. He also took a hard line 
on nuclear weapons, but perhaps not the hard line everyone was expecting. <laughs> First, he referred to nuclear energy as a heavenly gift, which is simply scientifically untrue, Andy. It is very much a manly gift, nuclear <laughs> energy. A gift from mankind that I think we all wish we'd rather never opened. Uh, he apparently uh, also criticised the US for not dismantling its nuclear weapons and then claimed that he was reiterating his call for a nuclear-free world. <laughs> he said, the nuclear bomb is the worst inhumane weapon and which must be totally eliminated. I do hope that he winked at the camera after that, <laughs> Andy, and then said, seriously, no one should ever have nuclear weapons, <laughs> and then winked again. <laughs> he, I clearly, John, clearly, he, he really wants to lead the world in nuclear disarmament and in order to be able to do that he has to have some nukes to disarm yeah yeah i suppose that's so it there is, this is this is a lot it's, it's the most pacifist nuclear weapons program in the history of humanity he's branched out his irritation this year because he even caused trouble before getting into the chamber apparently hotel guests in the hotel in manhattan where he's staying complained that he bought a personal chef to prepare his food for him uh, that made and i quote the whole hotel stink like hell. <laughs> now, <laughs> that, that's a bit unfair to the chef, Andy, because on that particular day, Ahmadinejad had ordered takeout from Thank Allah It's Fridays, <laughs> which is his favourite restaurant. Their infidel burger is a classic, Andy. <laughs> like the slogan says, it stinks like hell, but it tastes like heaven. <laughs> this might be the biggest insult of all from Mahmood. Who brings a chef... To New York City, Andy. This is one of the most consistently delicious cities in the world. <laughs> Maybe he just needs to have one meal here, because I'm pretty sure his attitude to America would change before the dessert menu came out. <laughs> Particularly if we went to Katz's Deli. Oh, you can't oh, argue with that. I don't want to plug, uh, plug places that aren't giving us money. But, um... Yeah. <laughs> He'd become a f of a lot less <laughs> anti-Semitic after one sandwich there. Abso absolutely. <laughs> The UN also have discussed uh, their Millennium Development Goals that were set at the start of the millennium to be achieved by 2015. As yet, none of those goals have been scored. Um, mm -hmm. It does appear at times that the UN is playing for a nil-nil draw. Uh, <laughs> some politicians do claim they're still on target, and that come 2015, all the world will be able to hear is the UN's commentator getting increasingly excited in his commentary box, shouting, Chance to eradicate poverty and hunger! False nicely for the developed world! Shoots! Go! <laughs> Universal primary education now! Clean through! Just to keep it a beat! <laughs> Reducing child mortality. Unmarked to the far post. Free header. Oh, hit the post. Rebound. Goal. <laughs> combating AIDS. Back to combating malaria. Back to AIDS. Dink through for malaria. Goal. <laughs> what a performance of the developed world. It's an absolute millennium goals feast. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people think that um, you know we're not we're not quite on track. We've been sidetracked by other issues uh, such as forking out. F trillions of dollars to clear up the economical excrement crap mm -hmm. through the world's letterbox by the risk-taking shitbags of the financial sector. <laughs> and also by just not being quite asked enough about it. Um, and these goals might not be bet. Uh, the uh, uh, UN Secretary-General Ban Keith-Moon encouraged world leaders <laughs> not to abandon their targets and not to balance budgets on the backs of the world's poor. And a number of world leaders responded, oh, but we like balancing budgets on the backs of the world's poor. It's fun, and they've got really balancy backs too. Nice and flat, ideal for budgets. <laughs> it's all too reminiscent of the last millennium, John, when the... Uh, Millennium Development Goals then weren't met uh, a thousand years ago. They included learning how to ride a pig, 
wondering what berries you're allowed to eat without dying, and wondering why the f*** everyone was living in mud huts and grunting when 1400 years previously the Greeks had been inventing democracy, building the Acropolis and oiling up teenage boys and making them wrestle. <laughs> For their own physical development, of course. <laughs> But now and again, you know, you turn on the right-wing talk radio, and to hear the callers to these programs is enough to set you packing, you know, for some foreign country that you think that you could relocate to, because that can't possibly be one of your countrymen. And you listen to the host and the callers interact, and you hear people that would not admit that their side was wrong under any circumstances, because that would provide a victory to the other side. It's a conscious attempt to not learn from experience because learning from experience would be admitting that, you know, the other side had a point. And we're not going to do that. We'd rather be wrong and ignorant than to correct our, you know, preconceptions. Case in point, these wars. I was right about these wars, folks. Like I said, this show could turn out to be self-serving, but I'm not the only one. There's a couple of good books out there. Um, one you can pick up right now. It's, um, I would call the argument a little scattershot, maybe, um, but it's a it's a good book to explain how we got into this mess where the president gets to run the foreign policy and could launch nuclear weapons without telling any of us or asking anyone if they wanted to. Um, that book's called uh, Bomb Power, The Modern Presidency in the National Security State by uh, Gary Wills. It's a good book. There's two, though, on the horizon that are going to be released in August that I'm eagerly looking forward to. One is the new Andrew Basevich book called um, Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War. And the other is um, the new book, intimately and extensively researched, and I only know this because I tried to get him on the program and he had to beg off because he was working on this book, Chalmers Johnson's new one, Dismantling the Empire, America's Last Best Hope. These are the kind of books that folks on the conservative side of the American ledger will not read, and they will not read them because they will say that the people writing them are nothing but leftists, so I don't have anything to learn from them. That's just their political viewpoint. Except that they're right! Can't we accept that? See, what's funny too, Ben, is that there are conservatives out there, real conservatives that I can talk to, that were right about Afghanistan the whole time. But that's not the mainstream people running the show today. The people running the show today are from the William Crystal neoconservative camp, and war is a large part of what they intend to do, the remaking of the world, right? The problem is, folks, is that the remaking of the world is killing us, because nobody can remake the world, and to admit that goes against, you know, a whole line of ideological thinking. You can say what you want about Chalmers Johnson's left-leaning, you know, proclivities, but he's been right the whole time. You can say that Robert Fisk is an anti-Israeli leftist. He's been right the whole time. You can talk about Andrew Bacevich as some sort of a left-wing hero. 
but he's been right the whole time. And Chalmers Johnson, by the way, former Korean War veteran, former advisor to the CIA. Andrew Bacevich spent 20 years in the military. I mean, these are hardly the people that you normally think of as, you know, card-carrying members of students for a democratic society. Let me read you something that hit the news today. And today is uh, July 15th, 2010, from that historian I keep chasing around to get on the program. Like I say, I feel like I'm buddies with him, even though I've never had a you know, one-on-one conversation with him except via email. Neil Ferguson was at a conference in um, was it Aspen, Colorado. Yeah, my old neck of the woods um, from college. And he said some fabulously interesting things. Ferguson is not a left-winger, but he's the most open historian out there that conservatives might pay attention to calling our country what it really is, an empire. And words are so important because when you call things what they really are, you change the nature of the conversation. For example, we've always said, haven't we, that you need to call you know, the problems in this country with financial and governmental corruption what it is. You need to call it corruption, because if it's corruption, you're, you have to do something about that, don't you? Corruption mandates that you fix that because corruption is bad. When you just call it politics as usual or campaign funding uh, uh, reform, that's a different thing. That's just politics. Corruption is a huge problem that needs to be dealt with. Listen to what um, Neil Ferguson says, and it's sobering, ladies and gentlemen, and it's not just sobering. It's an indictment in a sense, even though Ferguson doesn't exactly mean it that way. It's an indictment to all those people who were wrong about things like the wars our country's in, and who refuse to learn from this fact from the beginning of the peace. Um, it's entitled, Historian Warns of Sudden Collapse of American Empire, from the Aspen Daily News, Tuesday, July 6, 2010. Oh, I guess it was from July 6. Just hit my wires now. Um, quote, Harvard professor and prolific author Neil Ferguson opened the 2010 Aspen Ideas Festival Monday with a stark warning about the increasing prospect of the American empire, empires in quotes, suddenly collapsing due to the country's rising debt level. Quote, I think this is a problem that's going to go live really soon, Ferguson said. In that sense, I mean within the next next two years, because the whole thing, fiscally and in other ways, is very near the edge of chaos. And we've seen already, he says, in Greece, what happens when the bond market loses faith in your fiscal policy, end quote. The story says, Ferguson says empires, such as the former Soviet Union and the Roman Empire, can collapse quite quickly, and the tipping point is often when the cost of servicing an empire's debt is larger than the cost of its defense budget. Quote, that has not been the case, I think, at any point in U.S. history, Ferguson says. It will be the case in the next five years. Ferguson was conscious, he says, of opening the Ideas Festival on such a stark note. Quote, Walter Isaacson, the leader of this great institution, said, Don't be too dark, Ferguson said. The affable British scholar tried to keep it light. He used a stage whisper to tell the Aspen Institute audience, quote, I know you're not comfortable with the word empire, especially just after the 4th of July, but you are the Redcoats now, end quote. The story says, quote, Ferguson said the U.S. is now deeply in the red as a country because of a combination of the Great Recession, the resulting federal stimulus and financial bailout programs, two wars, the Bush tax cut, and a growth in social entitlement programs. And economic debt, the story says, can lead to a sudden loss of military power and global respect, Ferguson said. Quote, by combating our crisis of private debt with an extraordinary expansion of public debt, we inevitably are going to reduce the resources available for national security in the years ahead, Ferguson said. Because as the debt grows, so the interest payments you have to make on it grow, even if the interest rates stay low. And on current projections, the federal debt is going to be absorbing around 20%, a fifth of all taxes you pay, within just a few years. 
He says the item of discretionary federal expenditure most likely to be squeezed, of course, is defense, end quote. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. The U.S. war in Afghanistan has caused another casualty, freedom of the press. In the last week, coalition forces have arrested two Afghan journalists from their homes in pre-dawn raids. Both worked for Al Jazeera and one also freelance for the AP. And on Saturday, the Afghan intelligence agency arrested a radio reporter who actually headed up a provincial journalist association, according to the New York Times. They were all accused of engaging in propaganda for the Taliban. Al Jazeera vehemently denies this charge and accuses NATO forces of trying to mess with its coverage of the war and pressure the news agency to change its editorial line. Even President Karzai demands the release of the reporters, but he apparently isn't in charge of his own country. The Pentagon and NATO exercise that authority. A NATO spokeswoman said the insurgents use propaganda, often delivered through news organizations, as a way to influence and in many cases intimidate the Afghan population. So the U.S. now claims to be bringing freedom to Afghanistan by suppressing freedom of the press. We've reached another dubious milestone there. what drives me so crazy about this, ladies and gentlemen, is that the line I always heard from folks um, on the conservative side of the ledger about my foreign policy is that it was anti-military, anti-defense. When in reality, folks, had my foreign policy ideas been adopted, had the foreign policy ideas of a leftist like Chalmers Johnson been adopted, had the foreign policy ideas of a military realist and veteran like Andrew Bacevich been adopted, we would not be where we are today. And that would mean a stronger military. Isn't that wonderfully ironic that the people who support the troops and the people that, you know, want a muscular foreign policy and want to show American military might and blah, 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 they're the ones who undercut the prestige and power of the U.S. military. The funny thing is, if you go read Basevich's first real popular book, The New American Militarism, he says that not only was the military aware of this dynamic, but they restructured the whole U.S. military after the Vietnam War to see that what happened to them in the Vietnam War didn't ever happen again. Remember, folks, our military was screwed by the politicians in the Vietnam War. They were put in a position that was a no-win situation for them. 
it broke the American military for a decade. There are a lot of people at the higher echelons of the American military that wanted to see that that never happened again. They reorganized the U.S. military in a way they thought would prevent that from happening again. Basevich's book, The New American Militarism, shows how that was circumnavigated by a bunch of people who are the same people today that say, you know, we have to be all over the world. And, you know, if you're against our policy, you're an isolationist who's soft on defense. Those guys are the ones who broke the military again. But we don't learn, do we? That's the part that makes you want to pull your hair out. It's okay to make mistakes. It's not okay to not learn from them. And the reason we're not learning from them isn't because we're stupid. It's because the other side was right. Those people who were calling into that right-wing talk show, you could say that the sky is blue if you were a left-winger, and they would not admit it because it would give you a point in the argument. That's the sort of stubbornness that leads to where we are today a country that's going to get whipsawed by what's going on in the world. I mean, when we had all of the financial tsunamis that we knew we were facing, and we went to war anyway in 2001, it was like you're already dying, and you decide to, you know, take some pills to make the process move along a little bit more efficiently and quicker. Let's talk about that for a minute, too, because this is the part where the stupidity gets so glaring that if we can't call this stupid... Well, then you're just basically saying that we defend our political side of the argument, and it's stupid, you know, anyway. Let's go back and look at the situation in 2001 to show just how ridiculous the whole thing was. Folks, and there's a lot of veterans who listen to this program. You all understand this innately. If you're going to war game a situation, what is the very first thing you as the commander of a side are supposed to do? You're supposed to figure out what the enemy wants you to do. You want to know what their plan is so that you can avoid the traps that they lay for you. There was ample evidence before 9-11 that the 9-11 attacks and Osama bin Laden's strategy was to embroil us in a bunch of wars that would bankrupt, debilitate, and tire our country in the Middle East, especially in Afghanistan. So what did we go do? exactly what the enemy wanted us to do. Do you realize that if our country, and the Ferguson article, I encourage you to read it. By the way, we tweeted that article out on both our Hardcore History um, feed and our Common Sense feed. Two Twitter feeds we recently set up. A listener actually set up the Hardcore History feed. But we set both those up because you people have been screaming for me to do that. Um, Hardcore History is the name. Um, of the Twitter feed for Hardcore History. The other one is DC Common Sense, if you want to follow us. Um, I'm new to this, and I hope I'm doing it right and you know tweeting things that are worthy of your attention. So if I do it wrong, it's just because I'm a newbie, and I'll try to learn. But in any case, when you look at the situation our country's in, and you realize that we could be going down the tubes. Neil Ferguson's no liberal, and he's basically saying it's the end of the American empire because of the confluence of all these forces. You have to realize that Osama bin Laden deserves the lion's share for doing that to us. And he did it by poking with a stick the very people who were hosting and calling in to that right-wing you know, radio program I was listening to. He did it by understanding his enemy, people like William Crystal. Poke him, they're going to you know, say we have to have a war, they're going to shout down the people who are against it as isolationists. Bingo! You know, which side actually, you know, played their war game better? Us or Osama bin Laden? He got us to do exactly what he wanted us to do. And look at where, you know, that line of thinking has gotten us. And the fact that we can't learn from this assures that we're going to go even farther down the tubes. I mean, that's what Michael Steele's in trouble for. That's what, I mean... Not just that, I mean, I, I'm sorry, the brain is just, 
you know, clicking on all cylinders right now, and I can hardly even speak. But you look and you just realize we're going to keep any lessons that we might learn from this secret for another 40 years so that by the time, you know, that stuff's made public, it'll be too late to learn from it again. That is, of course, assuming that we're ever in position militarily to do what we did again here. This may be the high watermark of the U.S. military, and that's a shame. By the way, I should say that there's one quandary I find myself in here doing this show and taking this position, which I've taken for many years on the U.S. military, and that's when I get emails from soldiers about to be deployed. I've gotten several. Um, one was particularly um, upsetting, where the soldier said you know, a bunch of nice things about the program, and that he agrees with me on so many things, you know, all the nice things that the listeners say. And then he said, but listen, Dan, he said, I'm deploying next week to Afghanistan. So I'm going to be a boot on the ground. Do you know how hard it's going to be for me to do my job, you know, knowing that this is how you feel and with you putting these kinds of thoughts in my head? You know, I'm not in a position to doubt things right now. I have to believe in the cause and I have to feel like the people back home are supporting me. Think about what a quandary that puts you in. Because he's got an absolute point. Who the heck, you know, doesn't want to support those people on the ground doing this, you know, work and putting their lives at risk and putting their lives on hold and all those kinds of things. And yet you realize that if you take that kind of thinking to its logical conclusions, you can never criticize the war effort. Criticism of the war efforts and the deployments and the foreign policy always come at the expense of the troops on the ground trying to fight that war, you know, while you're talking. But here's the thing. The goal should be, you know, just like it should have been 40 years ago, 45 years ago, to think about those troops on the ground before we send them on the ground, and to think about the next deployment, and the deployment after that, and the deployment after that. We're going to learn from this war, and we're really going to think about the troops. Think about only putting them in harm's way when it's absolutely necessary, when you can defend it a thousand percent, and when you know that the politicians in Washington aren't making that poor soldier's job impossible before he even steps on the plane, you know, at, at the Air Force Depot in Afghanistan. Our soldiers have been screwed by the politicians and the pundits and the partisanship in this country. Politics that are so bitter and vile and poisonous that we refuse to even learn from the facts if the facts conflict with our own personal political narrative. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a recipe for disaster. And anyone who plays that game, you know, to quote another line from the 60s, is part of the problem. Hello, Jay. This is Tristan from um, up in Quebec, Canada, and I wanted to leave a message to show you that there actually are real socialists out there, and I'm getting a little tired of it being a bad word to some people, just because we had one bad government and you guys had one too. I'm just going to say, I will join the progressive cause until the progressives become the new conservatives, and then I can fight you guys. But until then, enemy of my enemy is my friend. Good luck with Best of the Left. Thank you very much. Hi, Jay. It's Michael from Glen Burnie. Um, I just wanted to add some comments to what uh, Dave from Olympia said in the last episode uh, regarding Islamophobia. Uh, when he was talking about the uh, uh, Ring of Fire episode, 
or the Ring of Fire segment from a couple episodes ago. Uh, basically, you know, I totally agree with what he said, but uh, on top of that, I also felt like the thing that pissed me the, pissed me off more about it than just you know the fact that the guy is saying to you know that, that Obama's policies are great when they aren't was that. Uh, you know, basically, he's asking us to be hypocrites because we're calling out the right for doing all sorts of, you know, all sorts of things we don't care for and being hypocritical about how they hold, you know, their representatives to different standards than they do to the liberal ones. And uh, they're asking, he's asking us to do basically the same thing, to hold our leaders to a different standard than we do to the Republicans. And while that may be a smart strategy, and I think they've proven that it is a smart strategy and that it, you know, wins elections or at least gets you noticed more, uh, I don't think it's a good strategy. And I think it, it's uh, kind of the start down a dark path when you start fighting for things that you don't believe in. So that's kind of the way I, uh, I feel about that. Also, just as a side note, I wasn't going to call in again because uh, uh, of the horrible music that you played behind my voice the last time. And I was very offended by that. But since now that you've added this edgy, awesome, you know, cool hit music, I feel safe again to want to call and share my opinion. Thanks again for all you do. Take care. <laughs> uh, this is Bob Thompson from Marquette, Michigan, and I'm laughing at lo- out loud again. And uh, I love your show. I downloaded the pod app, the i app, the iTunes app, and I am telling everybody I can about it. And I am putting it out in email, the link to the website, and I've got it on my Facebook. I can't get enough. Keep up the good work. <laughs> it is so good to be able to laugh at some of the absurdity of this crazy world. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks, of course, to everyone who called in to leave a message for the show. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And I did want to respond to... uh, the last thing that Michael from Glen Burnie said today about uh, about how he felt safe calling back in because of the change in the music that uh, that I play underneath the the calls and you know because I have a casual relationship with you guys and uh, I, I am happy to tell you some behind the scenes things every once in a while the last comment I ever made on the show about the music I was you know playing some you know, kind of silly music uh, behind it, which, and and what I said about it was that I thought it was genius because it was hilarious. And I, I stand by that. I think it was funny. Um, and then immediately after making that comment, the very next show, I had changed the music and never, never went back. And so, you know, you, you're probably wondering with about 1% of your effort, uh, huh, yeah, I wonder what happened to that. And the answer is, uh, I got a couple of different comments that um, that had just never occurred to me that yes, although the music was funny, what the uh, the impact it ended up having was that it sounded like it was making fun of the callers. And of course, that was not my intention. You know, if I had any intention, it was uh, to liven up the, the sound of the callers and to kind of make it funny 
uh, even if the callers were, you know, not saying uh, anything like really super exciting. Um, so the music would would kind of uh, keep your attention. But uh, but yeah, obviously I did not have any intention of making fun of the people who called in. So uh, as soon as I got a comment or two like that, I scrapped it. So who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll save the silly music for when conservatives call in and try to disagree. Now, my comment for the day uh, on this show's topic is uh, based on a conversation I just had with a friend of mine, basically asking the question of, you know, it probably doesn't apply much to anyone in this audience, but this whole idea of American empire, like, I just fundamentally don't get it. I don't, uh, I don't have any desire to, uh, you know, dominate my friends or if, you know, coworkers, you know, if I worked in an office or if I was a boss, I don't, I don't have this desire to like rule with an iron fist. I don't have any of those feelings personally. And I don't have any desire to live in a country that feels that way about the rest of the world. You know, we are in a community of countries all around the world. And I just fundamentally don't see the benefit of maintaining an empire and kind of you know, trying to rule the world with military might and and kind of firm uh, diplomacy or, or you know, it just rubs me so much the wrong way that although I am not like an expert on foreign policy or anything, it just seems to stand to reason and then seems to play out in real life that when you try to be, a, you know, kind of big badass player in the world, that people go from maybe respecting you to resenting you because that's exactly what would happen if you're a big powerful person you know in your individual life and you go from using your powers for good and respecting those around you to you know using your power to make others bend to your will uh and i just uh you know in my personal life well, I've never been a big, powerful person, but I can certainly imagine that you can get a lot more done when you have everyone else kind of on your side helping you than uh, everyone kind of resenting you and being forced to do what you want, just in the most general way. And so that uh, is the stance I would like to see this country take. And so all in all, in the broadest sense, that's what I would advocate for. Now, before I go, I just want to thank a couple of members who make this show possible. Jim J signed up on June 30th and uh, just signed up for a monthly membership. Has been sticking with the show since then. It's been a huge, huge help, just like every member. And uh, and Michael L signed up for a yearly membership that started on June 29th. So huge thanks to Jim J, Michael L, and all the members and donors who keep this show going. Obviously, I just can't uh, do it without you guys and uh, can't show my appreciation enough. Everyone, please keep telling your friends, family, neighbors, coworkers about the show. Word of mouth makes a huge, huge difference. Stay connected to the show online and spread the word about the show online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Details about the show itself, including links to sources and music used in this and every episode, are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.